I'm really excited about the opportunity to be here to speak with you uh, folks tonight about my first mission trip to Uslatan, El Salvador. And uh, I would like to thank the elders in the congregation for recognizing the importance of mission work and making it a priority at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. And I would like to thank those who had a part in providing financial sponsorship and prayers uh, for my daughter, Taylor, and I uh, that made it possible for us to go on this trip. And I'd also like to thank my wife, Jennifer, and my daughter, Reagan, uh, for their understanding and, and my being away during spring break. I have so much to be thankful for, and participating in this mission trip has certainly heightened my awareness of this fact. It has also reaffirmed something that I have known, but I'm guilty of taking for granted. And that is that we should praise God always. We should be humble and thankful and praise God always. Alabamos adios. In my life, I've been blessed to participate in team sports and to be a part of some really great teams. And there's something special about working together as a team for a common purpose and a common goal. And this mission trip to El Salvador was an exceptional example of a team working together for a common purpose. To serve our God, and in doing so, to save souls, to share the gospel, and to provide medical attention and compassion to the people of Uslatan. Taylor told me after going on her first trip to El Salvador how wonderful it was, and she said, Dad, you really ought to go. And so I decided I would go in hope of growing spiritually. And this trip far exceeded my expectations in every aspect. And God blessed me with spiritual growth and opened my eyes and my heart to the people of El Salvador. As for the team that worked together on this mission trip, it was indeed a team of all-stars. And I had no idea the magnitude of the level of preparation that goes into making this trip a reality. And Buddy Pickler does an amazing job. You know, we always hear about Buddy being involved in this mission trip, and uh, I can't even begin to do justice to what he does. He has all the details figured out, and he communicates effectively with the team and provides tremendous leadership. From, from the preparation meetings we had prior to uh, details like having all our luggage duct taped the same, uh, to getting name tags. We all had three name tags that went on our baggage, and it just so happened we needed three name tags. He had everything worked out, and he worked tirelessly to make sure that everything got there and everyone got there, and everything and everyone got back. And uh, you're amazing, buddy, and I really appreciate everything that you've done and continue to do. There was an amazing team of cooks, which included members from Mount Juliet as well as El Salvador. And the meals we ate were awesome. And when I was in college, we called this the training table. We had a special line we went through to get our food. And the training table didn't have nothing on the meals, the great meals that we had there in El Salvador. And I'll give you a tip if you're thinking about going on a mission trip to El Salvador. When you arrive, you're joined uh, by the rest of the team that includes Latin American brothers and sisters that are there to work. And so each meal had American and El Salvadorian choices. And I love rice and beans and tortillas. And so for me, the choice was to eat everything in sight. 
And uh, people talk a lot about what heaven will be like, and it will be awesome if they will serve peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with rice and beans for lunch in heaven also. And then spaghetti with meat sauce and rice and beans for dinner. I'm confident I put on weight while there, and I have to mention the fruits and the vegetables also. I've never seen pineapple so big. I wish I could have brought some home to my wife because we love pineapple at our house, and they were so sweet. And then also the carrots. I saw a carrot that was as big around as a sweet potato. Our cooks did an awesome job keeping us fed and properly energized to be able to serve God. And our team also included maintenance workers and security and an unusual position that I would like to describe as glue men because they did whatever was needed to be done to hold things together. And uh, Mark Crisp and Dennis Buck Buchanan, they were the glue men. Uh, this mission trip was a serious operation which required daily maintenance and security to run smoothly. And God provided it. And I don't know how many of you know Larry Hildebrand from the Brushy congregation, but he was on the security detail. And needless to say, uh, we didn't have any problems. And you can see from this picture, there were people lined out the door, uh, patiently waiting for, for medical attention. And I don't have a slide to mention uh, for, the, for the folks that worked in the clinic, but uh, the prescriptions that were given out and all the work that was done, uh, it was awesome to see that. And our team included an awesome group of young people, one of which is going to speak to you here in just a minute. And uh, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But this is an interesting component to the mission work. And if you'll consider Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 16 and 17, but Jesus, and this is our Lord and Savior talking, but Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I've never stopped to think about why it would be good to have children involved in a mission trip like this and then I was blessed to see it firsthand. The people that were coming to the clinic included men, women, and children. And it was great to see the youth helping in the clinic and uh, with the other children. And in the evenings, there were children's Bible classes, and the youth helped organize these and participated in skits that helped teach the Bible. While all of this effort was going on, there was also a group of youth that would go daily to the schools and spend time with the children, showing God's example of love. And we should be very proud of our children because, because they did an awesome job. They were very respectful and they listened when it was time to listen and they were quick and ready to do whatever needed to be done. And they were impressive. And I would ask that all those children that were able to go on that youth, youth, uh, youth trip, all the children that were there on that mission trip, please stand up. Say we give these guys a big hand. They did a great job. And then there was the team of preachers, which included a significant group of Latin American preachers from different areas within Central America. And I was blessed to be assigned to evangelism. And I think God knew that I needed this. And I needed to see this. Each morning we would have a preacher's class, which I was also blessed to be able to join. And we would have an awesome lesson. And then we would go out and begin evangelizing. 
And I can tell you, I, I really didn't know what evangelism was until I had this opportunity. And I was blessed to have spent most of my time in the neighborhoods with a Latin American preacher named Cesar. And Cesar also spoke English and served as a translator uh, during the week, but also to me while we were engaging the people of Usulatan. And walking the streets and meeting the people at, the, at that moment in their lives and studying the Bible was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever witnessed. And I was fascinated how willing the people were to open God's word, La Palabra, and look at the scriptures. I was also amazed at Cesar's knowledge of the Bible and his ability to call relevant scripture from his memory and guide the people on the study. He would even put the Bible in their hands while we were sitting there and he would flip the pages to help them find specific pages if they weren't familiar with the Bible. And as he would go through the passages, I would write them down, each one, so I could go back to it and look at it. I was, I was amazed by this. And, uh, it was, and I was sitting there reading as he was talking about it, and it was amazing what he was saying and what he was bringing out, what God's Word was saying to these people at that moment in time. And I also had taken a bilingual Bible in hopes of being able to increase my knowledge of Spanish. One day we were sitting with a man named Nelson going through a Bible study and the next thing you know this lady showed up in the doorway and overheard us talking about the Bible. And so I moved out of the doorway and she, she came in and sat down with us. And then in a minute she got up and went and got her Bible and came back in with her Bible and sat down. And it helped me see something that I already knew but sometimes take for granted. And that is that God's word is powerful. First Peter uh, chapter 1, 24 and 25 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. And it was good news that they needed, and it was good news for me. It was good news that I needed to see it. One thing that I must mention was the traffic. I studied transportation engineering in college and I learned of a concept called multimodal access. And I think this concept must have been originally developed in Uslatan. In Uslatan, the horn is not an extension of someone's personality, but rather it's an actual tool that's used for safe driving. And uh, did I say safe driving? If you can you can notice that picture doesn't really do it justice. Somehow it works though. There's a lot of dented up cars, but, but for the most part everybody just seemed to get out of everybody's way and move together. And the big buses and the, the people, just in the oddest moments of time, people would show up, you would hear the, the dingling of a bell and somebody was pushing an ice cream cart, an insulated ice cream cart in the oddest places, right in the middle of the street, it was something to see. I would be remiss if I didn't mention our very own Phil Wagner. Phil did a fantastic job leading the mission trip on behalf of Latin American missions. And he obviously is adapting very well to the new challenges he's facing in mission work. And he also has not lost his ability to praise God in song. And he did an amazing job leading singing during the week. But especially at times at night, we had a couple of different singings at night that were just awesome. It was, it was serious time to praise God. And on the bus to and from San Salvador, uh, needless to say, Phil was there uh, praising God. 
It was amazing to see the level of preparation that was present each day. And I was impressed with the fact that every time we gathered, everything that was said was translated so that everyone could understand. And one thing was for sure, the universal language of love, God's love, was magnified. And it crossed the language barrier, and we bonded as God's family, as God's team. And I know I grew spiritually, and I also grew closer to my brothers and sisters from Mount Juliet. And my family grew with my new Latin American brothers in Christ. And I have to say, I had two great roommates, Greg Coles and David Minton. And uh, that was their second time in going, and they really looked after me and, and were a lot of help to me. The trip was really awesome. And I would encourage everyone to consider taking a mission trip. For so long, I held God at a distance. And I'm thankful for his grace and his long suffering that he would allow me to draw closer to him. In James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I know we don't have to go to El Salvador to realize that we need God in our lives. And I would just encourage anyone, if you, if you feel... Uh, like you're needing God in your life, make the step, take that plunge, do whatever, get off the fence and get in the game because God will put you to use, effective use, uh, because the, the field is right. Thank you. Before Alan comes up and... Uh, give you his report on, on the trip. Uh, I thought it'd be appropriate for us to sing a song in Spanish. When I went on my first trip in 94, this particular song, A La Beret, made a tremendous um, uh, impression on me. So I've asked Elias to lead it, and hopefully we're going to have the words. Uh, they're not that scary. Uh, just look at them, and you can figure them out. A La Beret means we will praise him. And until you've heard seven or eight uh, Latin American brothers and sisters singing this song, you haven't heard anything because they flat out sing it. Now, we have, by my count, over 100 people in this congregation that's been on a trip before. So if you've been on one of these trips, you've sung this song. And there's you know, almost 500 people in here tonight, so you're going to have to sing out loud so that the other people that are not quite confident on it can, uh, can, understand, can hear it and follow the, the melody and everything. Okay? Please. Good evening. Thank you very much. This is my second time being with, in front of you guys, so I really appreciate that. Uh, we're going to sing, uh, like my brother Buddy says, a lavare. So I hope my brother don't have confused about the words upstairs, but... Uh, let's try it, brother, together. Let's do it. God, we know our words. I love us.
Good evening. Uh, I may not show it very much, but I am excited to get to talk to you all. I guess I don't get excited that often, I don't know. But I am excited to tell you about my first trip to El Salvador. Um, it was a life-changing experience. And uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to be told that I only have 10 minutes to tell you about something that I could probably talk for hours about. But um, let's get started. And first I'm going to read Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. Matthew 16, 26. This verse helps to put what we do in El Salvador in context a little bit. It says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How much money would someone have to give you to take your soul from a place that is with the Creator, that's connected to Him, an eternity of love and of goodness and to separate that soul from your creator and, and to go to an eternity where you're not with him and where you're not around love and you're not around goodness. A soul is just, it's worth more than all the money in the world and it's worth more than anything we can experience in our short time here on earth. When we were in El Salvador, we had 13 baptisms and 12 restorations. That's 12 souls and as far as we know, without this trip, they would not have the same relationship with their father that they have now. And those souls have had their eternities altered by what we did. Their entire eternity has been changed and has been changed for the better because of the work that we were able to do. And that's exciting to me. That's the most exciting thing about El Salvador is when we can go and we can tell people about God and they get it and they're baptized and... And for them, now they're connected with their Creator for an eternity, and they weren't before. That's, it just makes our time on earth seem so precious, and it's exciting to see that happen in El Salvador. Well, I just want to tell you a few things tonight about what makes El Salvador uh, different and special, and what I noticed um, from my trip in El Salvador. One thing that I noticed is the willingness of the people down there to talk to you about God. Um, in America, you know, when you go door knocking, at least the experience I've had, um, you'll knock on their door, you'll give them a flyer, they'll say thank you, and they'll shut the door. Sometimes you get to talk with people for longer. Um, in El Salvador, what I saw was door after door after door. As many doors as I saw, the people come, and they're friendly, and they'll talk for 10, 20, 30 minutes. People are really willing to talk for a long time, and they're interested to hear what you have to say. I think the, the cultural idea is spreading in America that all churches are the same, it doesn't matter, you, you don't need to be worried about that, it's just somebody knocking on your door. And In El Salvador that idea hasn't spread as much and the, and the people are more willing to talk to you. And that was one interesting and exciting thing that I noticed. One thing that was amazing about El Salvador was being able to work with the Latin American preachers that were down there. Um, we were with preachers from, from El Salvador, from Panama, from Nicaragua and Honduras and from all over Central America. And these preachers know their Bible very, very well. It's easy to tell when you see them studying with someone, when you, when you hear them preaching. They know the Bible so well, and it just encouraged me to want to know the Word better myself. They reminded me of Second Timothy chapter 4, 2 through 5. 
2 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 5. Or, let's see, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5, sorry. It says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The, the preachers that I saw down there, they just inspired me because they're, they're ready in season and out of season. They're ready, they're long-suffering, they're patient with people. They want to show people the Bible and they want to show people what the power that's in this word and they do the work of the evangelist and it was encouraging to me just to see that. Another thing that was special about El Salvador and Mr. Jamie talked about this is being able to go into the schools. That was exciting to, to be able to go into classroom after classroom and we were allowed to teach them Bible stories and to talk to them about Jesus and about God and to sing Christian songs with them. And, and we had such a good response, especially from the younger children. They get excited, and you can tell that um, they're really interested and they're really excited to know what these people from the United States are talking about. And, and we're encouraging them to read their Bibles, and we're telling them about Jesus and about God. I, just, I was um, pleasantly surprised by the freedom that we have to tell them about that in El Salvador. And uh, the principal from one of the schools that we went to, the largest school we went to, he came to our gospel meeting on the last night, and he said something to this effect. He basically said, my school is your school. When you come to El Salvador, you can do what you want in my school. You can come and you can tell the kids, and we would be happy for you to come and to talk to us. And to have that opportunity to, to be able to tell them and to show them the love of God was really exciting. Um, there was a kid that I met there um, during recess one day, and I gave him a bracelet, and uh, we kind of hung out every day, and I taught him a handshake. And then um, at one of our, the, the last night for our um, gospel meeting, I saw him there, and I saw that he had his family with him. And um, I prayed for that family, and I still pray for them, and I pray for, for all the families that we can touch. But that was what made it real to me to know that I can make a difference because I went into the school. That, that that child and his family can hear about their creator because I did that and that that was what made it real to me. Uh, another special thing about El Salvador was getting to see Phil Wagner. Uh, that was exciting for all of us and I don't know if I have any right to say this, I'm 18 years old, but I think Phil Wagner has matured a lot. And, The, the Phil Wagner that I saw in El Salvador, he was a man of God, and he was committed, he was godly, he was living a pure life, and he was ready to serve God. He was excited. I, I don't know how many people I've ever seen as excited as Phil Wagner is about doing the Lord's work. He was an encourager. He was always encouraging others. He, w he was full of a fire in his bones that I could tell he, he could not contain it, and he was ready to go tell more people to do the Lord's work. And... Uh, I just want to encourage you to know that Phil Wagner 
is worthy of your support. He's doing a good job down there. And uh, I emailed him the other day, and uh, he said to tell all of you that he sends his greetings and that he wanted to say hello to you. Uh, El Salvador benefited me and all of us that went down there richly, as well as the people in El Salvador. Uh, I just want to encourage you, if you've ever considered going on the mission trip to El Salvador, to, to consider that very strongly, because it's a, a good experience for us to go down there, uh, as well as the other huge benefits. Um, I heard a quote one time that says, Inspiration doesn't often cause action, but action causes inspiration. And the more I've thought about that, the more it seems true. We don't just all of a sudden get excited and then go do the Lord's work. When we do the Lord's work, we get excited, and it has a, a compounding effect. And uh, I found that to be true for me. It was really exciting. So in, in closing, I'd just like to say that in El Salvador, we were able to meet a lot of people's physical needs and to show them love and to help them be more comfortable, to help them with their medical problems. There were a lot of seeds planted and there were a lot of people that heard more about God's word and that saw more of God's love. There was a lot of encouragement for the churches down there and especially the Colonia Cruz church that we were working with in Usulatan. Those of us who went down were encouraged and more than anything we're thankful for those 25 souls that we know of that have had their eternities altered because we went down there and there's no price tag you could ever put on that. Well, I don't have any songs in the Choli language. Um, you know, all of us have a tendency with our own particular uh, uh, mission works that we're involved in to um, get excited about it, but we must always remember the principle that's very important is that there is no competition among lighthouses. And that's what these things are. I want to respect the time limitations that I've been given tonight, but, um, you know, when I go 9,000 miles, uh, you know, and uh, I expect to accomplish a whole lot more than I can tell about in a handful of minutes. So, and I also have another problem, is to try as hard as I can, I cannot get the words to come out of my mouth as fast as David Shannon's will. Um, I, I don't know, you know, what that is, but so anyway, if I happen to go over and there is a principle in communication that 30 minutes is not 30 minutes if it doesn't seem like 30 minutes. So I'll work real hard on that. But if I happen to go over and someone says to you that that man went over his allotted five minutes, then you very politely and nicely tell them that to sit down and be quiet, that the speaker is educated beyond his intelligence and, and um, he's trying as hard as he can. So just, just, just remember that. The purpose of our trip was just simply to determine that the buildings for our preacher training school in South Sudan uh, we're going according to schedule and the work was being done uh, correctly. Now, 
Most of the times, people want to know, well, what was it like? And so I've got some pictures to show you. I'll go through them real fast of what it's like. We fly into Juba, the capital city, and then it's about 100 miles to our destination, but it takes a whole day to get there. And here we're beginning to start. Uh, you notice we have two spare tires, and uh, Mike uh, Roman is our designated packer on top of the vehicle, and so he goes to work at it. And when we get there, one of the first things that I wanted to accomplish was to erect these signs. Someone from this congregation donated these, and now there is a sign out in front of our property saying that the Church of Christ meets here in English and in the Acholi language, and that this is the future home of the Bible School of South Sudan. And it also, I think, says that in Acholi, except the translator told me that there is no word in the Acholi language for future, so I don't know what for sure he put up on that. Now, when we arrive, the first thing we do, of course, is to go check on the building. And we find a number of men hard at work. These men are mixing mortar. And uh, this is the preacher training school building. The other two buildings, there are three buildings on the campus. The other two, are, the walls are up and uh, or were up, and this was the preacher training school building, and they were hard at work on this. This is some of the brick that are locally made that they use there. If you'll notice this man here, he's, doing, he's being very carefully as a plumb bob, making sure that this wall is, is straight. And we appreciate the good quality uh, that is being done um, on this. Now this is the uh, church building, going to be the church building. And um, here the church leaders and Mike Roman, our man in charge of the construction of the campus, um, is meeting with the contractor and they're discussing where the baptistry is going to go and where the pulpit area is going to be and uh, where the communion table is going to be. And this is a great thing. Now, these men that are working on this project, most of them live on the site. And there are two ladies that, um, uh, that are preparing cooking meals for them. And this is one of the ladies. I don't know what they eat, but this one was beans. I don't know what was the other part. Well, our, um, the, um, our academic dean of the school is uh, Jeremy Thompson from Texas, a superintendent of schools there. And... Um, uh, Jeremy is used to relating to children, and so he was challenged with a game of checkers, and here he is. Jeremy wasn't doing too well in the checkers game because they didn't tell him that their rules for checkers are different there than they are here. And once he figured that out, why well, he was able to hold his own with these guys. This is a picture of Andrew Oching. Andrew is... Andrew is and his wife and son, Moses. They have a daughter named Bashtai. Um, Andrew has been supported by this congregation as a preacher there for about two years. And he's a fine man, and we, he's probably the only preacher that we will support full-time because we need him to be on the campus as soon as the school starts. He was too valuable to let some non-governmental organization hire him away from us. And so he's, he's there. Now, on Sunday morning, we had an overflow crowd. And in Sudan, when you have an overflow crowd and you can't get them all in the building, that's no problem. You just spread this mat and uh, they sit down on it and away we go. There were 92 adults, I believe they told me there that morning, and at least twice that many children, or it seemed like anyway. And, um, and um, 
Isaiah Jackson, who's been here and spoken here, and, and you should remember him, is translating for us, and he's working about as hard to translate as we are to speak. This young man here is a very uh, respectable man, admirable. He's 19 years old. He speaks English impeccably, and um, he wants to become a preacher and wants to go to the university to be a lawyer. If you can imagine a lawyer who's also a preacher, you know. Um, Kevin Batts would, would really love this young man. And uh, the problem with him was, though, that he didn't have enough money, and his family didn't have enough money even to take the entrance exam to the university. But I don't think the two men that were with me wanted uh, me to know about this, but they gave him the money to pay for his entrance exam test. This congregation has a beautiful custom. They, when, they, uh, when they dismiss and the amen is said, the first person that gets up comes out and he stands here. The second person gets up and comes and shakes his hand and then stands there. third one gets up and shakes hand with those two men and then uh, stands there. The third one until everyone has come through and everybody has shaken hands with everybody else in the congregation. And on this Sunday, it went around the building. And it was a beautiful sight, except for this young man here who was not about to shake hands with that girl. <laughs> as you can tell. But on the other hand, there is that girl with feminine strength or whatever, and that boy is going to shake hands with her whether he wants to or not. You can see that determination very vividly there. Mike Roman, our contractor, supervisor, um, wanted to do something with the kids. He was really touched by the kids in South Sudan. In South Sudan, approximately 70% of the population are children. And he was really touched by these kids. So he, he, he brought a sack of candy with him. And after services on Sunday morning, he wanted to give out the candy. His intention was to give every child a piece of candy. It didn't work out that way, though. But somewhere down in the midst of that, that mass of kids there is Mike. And I thought for a while I might have to get in there and try to rescue him, but after a while he came up with no candy and with, minus his hat. But anyway. This is probably my favorite picture of the trip that we had. The children there um, are very loving children, and they're not afraid at all of white Americans. And one day I looked down the road, coming from the church building to the lodge where we were staying, and... Here was Mike and um, Jeremy Thompson, our academic dean, coming down the road, and these kids with them all holding their hand. And that's indicative. Eric Trigeston here is, he's the associate uh, editor of the, um, of the Christian Chronicle, and he went with us. And uh, one day he was going to try to teach these children here the words and the actions to seeing Father Abraham. Now, the kids were really impressed with all the gyrations that went into the actions of Father Abraham, but I don't think they ever caught the words, though. And then one day, going back to our camp, one of the kids brought down his pet to show us. 
He reminds me an awful lot of somebody I know. I just can't remember for sure who that is, though. But, uh. And then on Monday, after the Sunday we were there, we met with the headmaster of the school that's across the road from, from the church building where we're going to be. And uh, this man is also the chief of the village. Isaiah, who is in the middle there, baptized him in a refugee camp in in Uganda, and um, he's not, this man's not faithful now, but he probably at least leans toward the Church of Christ, as they say, and uh, uh, we visited with him, and one of the things that I asked him for was, would there be a possibility if we did something nice for the school, like drill a water well for them, would they allow us to teach the Bible to every student in that school every day? And he pointed out to me that in South Sudan, that is part of the curriculum. He showed me the book. They call it character development or something like that, but he was very receptive to the idea of our furnishing a teacher and teaching every child in that school of the Bible every day. Now, Mike also didn't, also, didn't all, only bring some candy with him, but he brought some toys because he was impressed on our previous trip, that the children didn't have any, uh, any toys of any kind, anything to play with. And so he brought um, some balls and uh, uh, frisbees and uh, soccer balls with him. And the headmaster uh, took one class and brought them out so we could take pictures. And they were quite happy with their new, to with their new toys. This is a very beautiful country very fertile, the climate is ripe for them to grow anything, and it won't be too terribly many years until this will be a, a prosperous country if the people are trained and know how to do it. The last day before we leave, we go back by the church building site, uh, our construction site, and you can see that the walls are further up. The walls now on all three buildings are finished, and uh, uh, the work will start on the roofs very, very shortly. Now, this looks kind of rough here in those bricks, but, but remember that there will be a plaster uh, on the outside and the inside of these walls, and then it will be painted. And when it's finished, this will be one of the better buildings uh, uh, in that village. One of the things that, um, that we needed to do on our trip was that we had received word that some church in Ghana in Western Africa had sent a missionary to Juba, Sudan to establish a church of Christ there. We were able to find him, and on a Wednesday night before we left, we were able to visit with this group that he's now working with. And if you don't have a living room or a church building, you just take your chairs and meet outside. And it was a lot of fun to, to teach the Bible and answer questions about baptism with a group when I would teach and then a man would translate it into Arabic. And that was, that was very enjoyable. And uh, this is the group that was, came together that Wednesday night to study the Bible. Now, this, this is the preacher's wife here. And she's showing this young man a passage in the Bible that he didn't even know how to find. That young man may not have very much ability now. But what I see in this young man is that he may be one of the students in our preacher training school one of these days. He will learn the Bible there, and he will go out and teach others. And this is where they start.
One of the other things that we wanted to do on this trip was to do some footwork for Healing Hands International, who are going to be drilling water wells uh, in, in uh, South Sudan in connection with our work there. We'd had word that, that a division of the United Nations called UNICEF uh, was helping with some water well drilling projects. So we found the man who was in charge of that, the water well department for UNICEF, and we explained what we were going to be doing, and we asked him, is there any way perhaps that UNICEF would partner with us and with Healing Hands and help us perhaps by supplying parts so that we can repair broken water pumps? And he said, well, certainly. He said, we can provide you with parts and cash. We don't get many responses like that. He said, what you need to do is to write a proposal and tell us exactly what you need, and 99.9% of those that we receive, we grant. So we figured that this was a pretty good situation. The trip accomplishments were that the buildings are going great, the buildings will be finished in October perhaps, and school will be able to start um, in um, January of next year. Healing Hands footwork was accomplished. We accomplished a whole lot more on this trip than we ever uh, dreamed that we would, uh, getting access into the public schools, and then also completing the arrangements for the fact that one of these three buildings on our campus will be used for a free clinic. Well, now we have a nurse, and uh, we have another organization that will provide the equipment and the free medicines for the clinic. So now then, the thing that I would like to address for you is the question that would be in my mind if I were sitting where you were, or where you are, is that what good is Mount Juliet's money doing in this, in this? And I want to answer that by showing you this picture. On Sunday afternoon and Monday, we got together a group that would like to study the Bible more in depth and uh, talk about leadership questions and things. And this is the group that came together. There were a number of women because whenever you announce you're going to have a Bible study, there are a lot of women who come because they want to learn more about the Bible, not necessarily because they want to be leaders in the church. Now, Isaiah Jackson was working in South in Uganda, and Isaiah baptized one of these men here. He's in the second row. He has a blue shirt and there's an arrow pointing to him. His name is Sisto. One day in one of the classes we ask all these assembled people, what has your becoming a Christian made a change? How has it made a change in your life? And they all went around and answered very quickly. And it was exciting to hear their answers of how the, their conversion, their becoming a Christian, had changed their life. Sisto said that before I became a Christian, I drank a lot. I had a problem with alcohol. And when I came home drunk, my family had to leave. Now then, Sisto has conquered. He no longer has a problem with alcohol. Sisto, when he came back to Bajak, the place where we're going to have the school, he was elected chief of the village. He no longer is chief, 
because it was demanding too much of his time, but now he is the chairman of the Land Allocation Committee, which maybe was helpful in us having 24 acres of prime real estate almost in the heart of the village. But he's also the preacher of the church there and one of the most respected leaders in the church in South Sudan. Now, there's another man there. He's kneeling on the first row. Arrow's pointing to him. He's got a yellow T-shirt. His name is Robert. He's from Uganda. And um, since he'd come from Uganda, we wanted to know, you know, how the church was doing there. He's working among the same language people in the same tribe. And he explained that he was preaching in a church of about 150 people. We ask him because when we were there about two and a half years ago, we asked how many churches are there in Uganda, and they were able to itemize about five churches there. We ask him, how many churches are there now in Uganda? And he says there's 17. And we ask, who established those churches? And he did. There's another man that's not pictured in this. His name is Julius. He's from a a um, neighboring village. Julius is an ex-Catholic, and about a year or so ago, he was baptized. And less than three months after his baptism, he was preaching and baptizing people. Now he leads a congregation of probably 100 people. There are two things about these illustrations I've given you that haunt me. One is, how many more Sistos and Roberts and Juliuses are there in South Sudan that we don't know about? And can we find them? The second question that haunts me is, these men are accomplishing all of this and they don't know anything about the Bible. They have rudimentary knowledge of it. And look what they're doing. The question is, how much more effective could they be if they had a training and knew the Bible and knew how to preach and evangelize? And that's what that school will give them. And their influence will go on for generations and generations. Well... I should also mention the fact that we still need to raise $35,000 to finish the campus. A month ago, when I spoke here on March the 7th Mission Sunday, we needed 50000 We only need 35000 now. We're doing better. And if the Lord moves your heart to say, you know, that's something I want to get involved in, I wish you'd let me know, and we'll tell you more of the story about all of these things, too. This was a, a scene in Pajak one afternoon. Africa's always had a saying about them that it was the dark continent. And I think as this illustration of the sun, it was almost like that day God was smiling on us for what we had been able to do and what was going to be done. And, um, you know, it seems to me that this illustrates the fact that the sun, S-O-N, 
is shining upon the dark continent now. And that the light of the gospel is going to dispense with the darkness there. Well, that ends my time. Now, this is church time now. I'm going to offer the invitation. There's something I, I feel like I ought to say about this. Because, you know, we do it Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And it's like, you know, pretty soon that becomes old hat. And you wonder, what is it, you know? And, and maybe it becomes like my grandson that not too long ago when he was a little bit younger. that When it was his turn to lead the prayer at the, at the meal... He would start out and thank you for daddy and mommy and the grass and the birds and Graham and bum. I'm bum. He always mentions Graham first too. And then he would go into maybe three, four hundred other little things that he was grateful for. And you could always tell when he was getting ready to close because he would start talking faster. And then as he got ready to close, he would say, in Jesus' name, amen, now we can eat. Now, to him, I think maybe, you know, the prayer before the meal was something you had to do before you could eat. Sometimes I think maybe that we preachers have a language all our own that we forget that the unchurched people don't, don't understand. You know, we, we get to this point in the lesson and we say, okay, if, if you're subject to the invitation, would you come while we stand and sing? Now, if an unchurched person comes in, the only part of that they're going to understand is stand and sing, and they're not going to know what they're going to sing because they won't know the song even. They have no idea what the subject, what being subject to the invitation is. We do it because there's no telling where a person's heart is at any given day, at any given time. Perhaps this morning their heart wasn't there, but perhaps tonight their heart is where that they need to be. And maybe they just need a little, little encouragement. I remember preaching in, in an area just north of Boston once, and um, one of our members had started a Bible class study uh, where he worked. And uh, the men in his Bible class study and their wives had started coming to church. And it was on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, one of the men who was kind of the leader of the, the group came by. And uh, I knew that he was in the Bible study. And as we shook hands, I asked him how it was going. And he said, it's going fine. He said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost ready for baptism. And I said, um, well, if I can help you with anything, you let me know. He said, well, I'm getting close. Well, how close are you? I'm real close. Well, do you want to do it tonight? Yes. See, the only thing he was waiting on was somebody to specifically ask him. Well, that night, Bob and his wife, his brother, his wife, his mother, and his father, and his next-door neighbor were all baptized simply because they were ready and we asked them. I remember one of the things that Bob said when he came up out of the water was that he looked at it and he said, you know, I really expected that water to be black. 
He didn't understand how it is that God gets that sin away, but he did understand the concept of where, where it gets away, when it happens. And perhaps tonight, you are in the same place. It's hard to speak personally to you, but we want you to consider to be asked that perhaps you want to be baptized tonight, or perhaps you now have come to the point in your life that you know there's sin there, and you'd feel better if you asked the church to pray with you about that. Whatever it is, that's why we have this moment to make it more convenient, we stand and we sing to give you a chance to come down and let us know why we can help you. That's what's on your heart right now. Number 924. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was to take the Lord's Supper as we sing this song number 314 if you'll exit out the rear someone will show you where you can partake of that 314 <clears throat> beneath the cross of Jesus 
Number 634. We're glad that you were here tonight and hope we maybe spurred an interest in mission work in your, in your mind and uh, you will join in or help others to achieve that goal. Number 634 and then we'll be dismissed. blessings we thank you for tonight and for letting us to be able to share what we've been a part of and that's going on mission trips and sharing your word and making our main goal is to save souls for you father we thank you for those souls that were saved in el salvador we just thank you for each and every one of them we thank you for all the preachers Father, we thank you for the struggles that they endure every day because we know that makes them stronger. But we ask you to be with each and every one of them. Uh, there's a lot of churches that's been established throughout the world, Father, and Mount Juliet has been part of that, and we give you the glory and the honor of all of that. Father, a lot of us could not have been on those mission trips if it hadn't been for our brothers and sisters here at Mount Juliet, and we want to take a personal thank you to them, Father, and to continue to bless their heart uh, and the things that they do for you. We know everyone can't go on mission trips, and we appreciate the ones that help the others that do go. Father, we, we have a stateside mission coming up, and we uh, ask the ones that can't go overseas to foreign countries that uh, think about going to the stateside mission, Father. We just ask that um, we know we need more door knockers, and we ask that everybody think about it, and if they're able, that they can go on this uh, stateside mission trip, Father. Father, we've had a, a hard time come upon this church with things that's going on, losing people. Um, we just ask you to be with each family that has lost family members, Father, we want to thank you for our elders and the tough decisions that they've had to make throughout the years. Father, we want to name them personally. We want to thank you for David Burka, Albert England, David Flemings, Dwayne Griffin, Pat Hackney, Tony Huston, Dennis Nelson, Hoyt Smith, and James Whitaker. Father, we want to thank these men and their family for their love and their desires to shepherd your sheep, Father. 
We thank you for the sincerity and the seriousness that they think of upon their heart and of the decisions that are made through these gentlemen. We want to thank you for that, Father, and allowing them to be our shepherds and to guide us the right and proper way, Father. We know that's tough decisions and it's not easy, and we just ask you to be with them and their family. Father, we also ask you to be with our preachers. We ask you to be with Trey and uh, Phil and to be with David Shannon. And Father, just we just love them to death and thank you for all that they bring to us. We want to thank you for our secretaries, Pat and uh, Tammy. Father, we just thank you for uh, Don and the work that he's done in the Sudan. We know that there's no one area that's no greater than the other, and we just ask that you will uh, harvest the seeds that's been planted throughout the world, Father. Be with each and every one of us. Be with the sick. I ask a special prayer for my sister-in-law, Tammy Griffin. Uh, be with her as she goes through uh, radiation and to be with the doctors and the nurses that's providing that. Father, we thank you for uh, each and everything that you've done, but most of all, we thank you for your son that came to this earth and died on a cross for our sins, that one day if we do what you say, that we'll be, have a chance to walk with you in heaven. Father, we want to thank you for this, everyone that has participated in the years and the years to come for the Widows and Widows Luncheon. We had a great luncheon today, and we want to thank Hoyt and Lois Smith for that. Father, just be with each and every one of us. Help us go throughout this week and be able to share your word and let your light shine through us. For it's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.